Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. I'm CJ McKinney, standing in for Colin Yeo, who's sadly indisposed this month. But I'm joined by Free Movement regular Ian Halliday, who's taken a break from his training at the Faculty of Advocates to co-host in Colin's absence. We'll hear from Ian in a moment. What we'll be covering is some developments on EU citizens' rights, some cases on immigration appeals, some exciting stats on work visas, Then a few upper tribunal cases on asylum, human trafficking, and finally deportation. Before we get started, a reminder that if you are a lawyer and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this episode, head on over to freemovement.org slash training, where all these monthly roundup podcasts are available as a training course with a quiz you can take as evidence of your continuing professional development. Now, we'll kick off with EU citizens living in the UK from before Brexit people who have settled or pre-settled status, they can be joined by certain family members, including dependent relatives. So let's say you're a Portuguese citizen with EU settled status and you have a cousin from Angola, as it might be, who's financially dependent on you, then your cousin can potentially come and live in the UK as well, which is nice. And the type of visa you need to apply for is called a family permit. But there have been problems getting family permits and the Home Office point blank stopped issuing family permits to these dependent relatives after the 1st of July 2021. And that was even when people were entitled to them and they'd applied before that cutoff point. So some people were being told, yeah, you meet the criteria and you got your application in before the cutoff point, but we've literally stopped issuing this type of permit. So you can't come. And that was bad. But there's now a concession not part of the immigration rules, but in the relevant family permit guidance documents. And that says that people who didn't get their decision before the cutoff or who didn't come to the UK in time can still get their family permit. That's a change in policy for the better. But in the whole family permit situation more generally seems to be sort of all over the place. Yes, it's all a bit of a mess, really. Um, I had a few EEA appeals which straddled the 31st of December 2020 deadline the day that the, the UK left the European Union and it's very unclear what actually happens when a decision that someone's entitled to a document under EU law is only made after Brexit day um, or for instance the person's unable to travel and that's quite common because of Covid so they've got a permit that they're entitled to but they don't travel before the 31st of December. Um, it wasn't such a big problem during the grace period for the initial six months of after Brexit up until the 30th of June Um, But after that, there was a real risk of a a small number of people being deprived of their residence rights. I say only a small number because it was only extended family members um, who have weaker rights than than EU nationals and their direct family members. But the concession seems to provide a solution to that problem. Although, as Chris Benn notes in his write-up, I think further changes will be needed to the rules to make sure that um, people who are granted permits under that concession can stay long-term. Yeah, a relatively small number of people, but it affects those. It does affect very deeply. So definitely worth highlighting. And, and we'll keep an eye out for further improvements to, as as Chris says, fully resolve the situation. We, we seem to have only a partial resolution at the moment. Also on EU rights, we have an upper tribunal case based on the EEA regulations. These were the detailed pre-Brexit rules on immigration for EU citizens and, and their families. But there still seem to be quite a lot of cases involving the EEA regs still making their way through the courts. This is one of those judgments. It's 
just confirms that if you're dealing with one of these pre-Brexit legacy appeals, EU law still applies in full, as though Brexit had never happened. So this chap was able to rely on the Citizens' Rights Directive to sort of overrule the EEA regulations and win his case. The, the details of what exactly happened, I don't think, are that important. It's more this point that like the supremacy of EU law still operates in those appeals as it used to. You sort of had this ghost of EU free movement, uh, which can be useful, perhaps not for much longer, but certainly for the next couple of years in these legacy appeals. And that case, Getty, EEA regs, transitional provisions, appeal rights, Albania, 2021, UKUT 285 IAC. Yeah, I suspect EU law will be with us for quite some time, really. Um, I'm happy as I spent several years learning about it and wouldn't want that to all go to waste. Um, But I suspect Brexit supporters might not be quite so happy. It's worth highlighting that Parliament has provided for this. The judges aren't just um, taking it upon themselves to continue applying EU law. And the reason Parliament's had to do that is it's just impossible to close down an entire source of law overnight. As you say, there's plenty of cases where the EU regulations continue to apply because they started before Brexit Day. Um, But consideration of EU law is also often necessary to determine whether someone has rights under the withdrawal agreement. The regulations themselves have been preserved for some purposes, for instance, for people who committed criminal offences before the 31st of December 2020. There's numerous references to the regulations in the rules governing the EU settlement scheme. So I suspect that EU law is not going away anytime soon. Absolutely. Let's turn to appeals. And there's a pretty topical issue to do with people appealing from abroad over video link. So maybe you've already been deported or voluntarily left the country, but you can still appeal. And if you win your case, you might get to come back. And that necessarily involves people having to dial into the immigration tribunal from abroad. So the judges in London or Glasgow the appellant or a witness is in Zimbabwe, for example, and that's fine. But the tribunal has this weird rule where they say, if this is going on, you have to get permission from the government of the country you're dialing in from, because it's like an infringement of their sovereignty in diplomatic terms. So like, even if everyone is taking part voluntarily, you know, it's not a situation where you're asking the foreign government to like produce its citizens in chains or as unwilling witnesses or whatever. It's like, are you happy for the UK judicial system to sort of beam onto your territory in this very slight way? But on the plus side, the actual process for getting permission from that foreign government isn't too onerous. You basically have to contact what's called the taking of evidence unit at the foreign office, and they will notify the government in question. So the way I read what the tribunal is saying, it, it's, they seem to be implying that you're good to go unless there's an active objection that comes back from that government via the foreign office. You don't seem to need express permission before you can go ahead on every occasion, but still a bit of a palaver either way. And that's guidance on the permission process is in the case of Agbabiaka, Evidence from Abroad, NAIR Guidance, Nigeria, 2021, UKUT 286 IAC. Yeah, I faced this issue in an appeal last year, which involved a witness appearing from the USA. So I found Eric Fripp's write-up of the case really quite interesting. Um, At that time, there was no process for obtaining what the tribunal was requiring from the foreign government. I 
ended up resorting to the website of the Hague Conference on Private International Law, which contains country profiles for several countries, and that can tell you what the general rule is there. It's a good starting point, and, and it's what I relied on in, in my case, because often there is a, a general prohibition or a, a general allowance of evidence being taken from a foreign court in a particular territory. But that was before this new process was set up. Yeah, and Eric, as you say, has written about this, and he thinks that the premise that the tribunal is operating on, i.e. there is a need in international law to seek permission, or at least to check whether you know the country allows it or not, he says that premise is flawed, and that actually international law does, and the Hague Convention don't actually require it when you're talking about willing witnesses and that this whole thing is just based on a misunderstanding of international law, which is frustrating. (laughs) It certainly took me by surprise when all of a sudden I was being asked to get permission from the USA to sort of have a, a witness provide evidence in the tribunal. And all of the information I was directed to by the tribunal was completely inapt. It was all the information on the Hague Convention and like you say, a kind of misunderstanding of of international law. There seems to be a solution in this newly reported up tribunal case, though, which is is a good middle ground, because I think before the first year tribunal, we're really asking for people to do something that was impossible, get permission from a, a foreign state when there was just no process for them to do so. So whether or not it's based on a misconception that is at least a a defined process people can follow now rather than being left flailing about on your own trying to figure out what the, the first year tribunal actually wants. Yeah, absolutely. And we should be clear if the tribunal is saying to follow this process, you should absolutely do that. Objections rooted in international law, notwithstanding. Also from the Tribunal on Appeals Procedure, there is a ruling basically saying that if you have new evidence relevant to your immigration case, you can't be bringing it to the upper tribunal at that late stage of proceedings. You have to submit it to the Home Office instead. And Ian, I'll ask you to expand on that point because you wrote up this judgment, but let me just give the citation for it. It is Acter. Appellate Jurisdiction E and R Challenges 2021 UKUT 272 IAC. So this stems from the fact that you can only overturn a first-tier tribunal decision where there's been a legal mistake, so an error of law, basically the judge has got the law wrong. New evidence isn't generally relevant to that assessment. In, In this case, it was argued that it would breach the person's human rights if new evidence wasn't considered at the upper tribunal stage. But the answer to that is that the further submission process is always there in the background. That's a process which allows you to send further evidence to the Home Office with legal submissions explaining why it means that removing you would breach your human rights or or breach the Refugee Convention. It means starting the process all over again, basically. It's a new decision from the Home Office. If it's a refusal, another appeal to the first-year tribunal and an onward appeal to the upper tribunal. Also, if it's not accepted that the new evidence meets the definition of a fresh claim, then you won't even get a right of appeal, and the only remedy is judicial review. So it's not ideal, but that's what needs to be done, unfortunately, because that system is there. It means the upper tribunal doesn't have to take into account new evidence to avoid a a breach of human rights. Yeah, absolutely. It may perhaps to clients appear to defy common sense that relevant information can't go in at the... uh, 
Operation Beetle stage, you have to start back at square run, but that is the system that we have. Finally, a case from the Court of Appeal on when you can try to reopen an immigration appeal that's gone against you. So when it's completely finalized and perhaps then you have new evidence, can you get the case opened back up? Here you had a Miss Khan who had applied for permission to stay in the UK as a sponsored worker. The company lost its sponsor license while her application was still pending. She appealed, she lost, and then the Supreme Court handed down a decision, not in her case, but in a different case called Pathan, which Miss Khan thought applied to her situation. So she went back to the Court of Appeal and said, hey, the legal landscape has shifted because of this Pathan decision. How about reopening my case? There is Civil Procedure Rule 5230 for just such a case, uh, albeit in, in perhaps rare situations. The Court of Appeal said, no, the situation in Bethan was pretty different to yours. And it's not enough to say that your case might have gone another way if it had been considered in the light of this new understanding of the law. So really just emphasizing that you'll really have your work cut out if you want to reopen a finalized appeal uh, under the civil procedure rules, uh, at least in England and Wales, where the writ of those rules runs. The case is called R. Khan and Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2021 EWCA Civ 1655. Yeah, Sarah Pinder, who wrote up this case, um, mentioned in her blog post that the provision was new to her. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one, because I confess I had also never heard of it before reading Sarah's post. Um, I also don't need to look at the civil procedure rules very often or at all, really, um, as there's different rules of court in Scotland where I practice. Um, I've had a look and as far as I can see, there's not an equivalent of that rule in Scotland. I can't really see any mechanism for um, overturning a, a, a final determination. There you go. Yeah, a slightly more liberal situation in England and Wales on that front than it seems, although still, as we say, extremely difficult in practice to to invoke. Let's talk about work and business visas. We're starting to get some statistics, which always excites me, on what's happening post-Brexit and post-lockdown with um, the business immigration side of things. So, for example, skilled worker visa applications, the kind of main flagship uh, work visa, they are now significantly higher than they were in 2019. And that's not because EU citizens are now in the mix. So even if you just look at non-EU skilled worker applications, they're really high now in 2021 compared to kind of pre-pandemic, which is interesting to see. Nor is this to do with the fact that you now have a wider range of occupations that can be sponsored uh, under under skilled worker. The Migration Advisory Committee put out some analysis on this, and they show that only 9% of skilled worker applications so far this year are for these medium-skilled roles, uh, RQF 3 to 5 in the jargon, uh, which you can now sponsor that you couldn't in 2019. So the lion's share of this increase in applications is a kind of like-for-like change from pre-pandemic, which I think is interesting. And maybe it's just the fact that the labor market is very tight. And as there's no cap on the number of skilled worker visas you could get, businesses who are really short of workers are filling as many vacancies as they can with Indian software programmers, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps maybe there's some, also some pent-up demand still working its way through the system. Uh, so I would caveat us 
a little. And if that's the case, you could see the numbers fall back in subsequent quarters. It's just a kind of post-pandemic blip. So that's skilled worker. Global talent, which is a different category, this is the unsponsored visas for world-leading scientists and researchers and Nobel Prize winners and so on. There have been a record number of those issued in the last few quarters of 2021. Again, nothing to do with EU citizens, really. Hardly any of those are in the numbers, yes. But you had 700 global town visas in the most recent quarter of 2021, which is a record by far. And again, maybe that's to do with a backlog effect uh, to some extent, but it suggests to me that the transition from what used to be called the exceptional talent route, the old version, over to global talent, the sort of new incarnation with more liberal rules, has been a success. There's more people getting this visa and they're all pretty damn high skilled. It's uh, very encouraging. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Um, Certainly when I was in practice um, as an immigration solicitor, I noticed that exceptional talent applications were really quite rare. I think I've only done one application and maybe advised a couple of other people um, on that type of application. So it's good to hear that global talent's much more popular and seems to be a success. Yeah, still small enough, obviously, in the grand scheme of things, but on its own terms, uh, an improvement. Let me also do some numbers on the various temporary visa schemes. Uh, As we've discussed before on the podcast, there are five and a half thousand seasonal worker visas being made available to poultry workers, 5,000 for HGV drivers and 800 for pork butchers. But how many applications have there actually been to these high profile schemes? We can hear from Immigration Minister Kevin Foster on that. He was speaking on the 14th of December to MPs on the Food and Rural Affairs Committee. All right, if I can come on to numbers then, can you give us what are the latest figures on the number of temporary visas that have been issued first for the poultry sector, HGV drivers and and pork butchers? Uh, We don't have verified numbers that would be appropriate for me to give a specific figure because they change, also they change every day. But I could probably give you ballpark numbers. Can you give us some ballpark, Um, please? I would say you're probably talking a couple of thousand on poultry. And to be fair, we've also seen poultry taking advantage of skilled worker okay. visa as well. A couple good. of thousand on poultry, HGV drivers? A couple of hundred. A couple of hundred and pork butchers? In the dozens. But to be fair, that's been going a month and a half. Okay. So rather than the other routes which have been going. And, and, in, and in those three... So not a massive uptake. Not bad on the chicken people, the poultry workers, but really low for the drivers and the butchers. And that committee session was really quite testy because uh, Foster kept saying, well, you people and your industry buddies kept yelling at us, you need a special visa scheme for these workers. We gave you a special visa scheme and now it's not being used. Uh, And that annoyed the MPs from these rural seats who uh, are advocating perhaps on behalf of, of industry and farmers. And they were pushing back saying, well, the industry are saying, and we're telling you, Mr. Foster, that it's still a massive faff with paperwork and bureaucracy and it's slow. And even though it's the, the light touch seasonal worker scheme, it is, it's not working for these businesses. A really interesting disconnect there, I thought, between what the home office sees as a light touch scheme and what industries used to free movement of labor sees as light touch. I wanted to also mention at the same committee, I've been having great fun in their transcripts recently, the Environment Secretary George Eustace gave evidence 
And he was saying that about the butchers, the way they apply for these seasonal worker visas is to, and I quote, record a video of themselves doing butchery and the videos have to be assessed before an application can be processed. Yeah, it's definitely not common to be sending videos of yourself to the Home Office. Um, Let's just hope that none of the civil servants have to sit through all those videos are vegetarians. Even as a meat eater myself, I don't think I'd really relish the prospect of watching butchery videos all day. Yeah, usually you keep that stuff behind closed doors, I think, for for good reason. But uh, how and ever. Let's turn to asylum. There has been a case on statelessness, so the rules on getting to stay in the UK if you aren't a citizen of any country. And an important concept in statelessness is admissibility. So if your country of residence will admit you, even though you're not a citizen of that country or any other, you'll have a harder time convincing the Home Office that you qualify as stateless. This case concerned a Bidoon lady from Kuwait, no Kuwaiti citizenship. And what she was arguing was, okay, Kuwait, Kuwait might admit me in the sense of allowing me back in. But really what the admissibility rule is getting at is the right of permanent residence. So just because Kuwait would allow me in and out, if they don't grant me permanent residence, then I shouldn't count as admissible. And so I should satisfy the statelessness rules in the UK and get to stay. And there is Home Office guidance which seemed to support that interpretation of the rules. But the Upper Tribunal found that the guidance didn't actually say that unambiguously. It could be read either way. And so it wasn't determinative of the interpretation question. And they ultimately found against this lady. They found that someone can be admissible without having the right to reside permanently. So it doesn't seem on the face of it a wildly helpful case for stateless people. It's called RAZ and Secretary of State for the Home Department, Statelessness Admissible, 2021 UKUT 284 IAC. So the tribunal in this case decided that admissible means the ability to enter and reside in the country lawfully, like you say, doesn't extend to having any kind of permanent right to reside there. Personally, I think that's consistent with the ordinary meaning of the word admissible and and seems fair enough, really. Also in asylum, there's been a case on cessation of immigration status. We're really doing the grand tour of legal concepts in this episode. Cessation is basically where the Home Office says, okay, you were a genuine refugee, but the circumstances have changed and now you can go home again. And in practice, you don't see them examining the individual circumstances of many refugees who've been here for five years and, you know, trying to eject people en masse. What you see is that cessation is used as a way of ejecting people who've committed crimes in the UK. So maybe their refugee status can't be revoked, but the authorities can instead use cessation to say, aha, well, you don't need protection anymore, so we can get rid of you that way. And this lady was from Zimbabwe. The circumstances of her conviction were terribly sad. It was causing the death of one of her children by gross neglect. The significance of the judgment for our purposes is just that the Upper Tribunal restates the legal principles that apply in these cessation cases. So I won't read out the entire headnote, but it is worth looking at if you want a refresher on this or you have a cessation case. The judgment is called PS Cessation Principles Zimbabwe, 2021 UKUT 283 IAC. Ian, did you want to say anything on that one? Not much, just to to highlight one point that might be helpful in practice. 
the upper tribunal confirms that the relevant test is not whether there's been a change in circumstances, but whether the circumstances in which status was granted have ceased to exist. So that's a much higher threshold. That's not new. That was established in previous case law. Um, but it's it's in the head note of this decision and it's worth remembering um, that a mere change of circumstances isn't enough. That's a useful corrective for how I introduced the case. Uh, human trafficking. If you are someone who's been trafficked, i.e. exploited for forced labour, sexual gratification or whatever it may be, what you could do is tell the Home Office and then there's a team called the Single Competent Authority who will decide, are you actually a trafficking victim? Are you making it up? Are you confused about what's happened? The Home Office considers that too many people are presenting as trafficking victims. And by total coincidence, they've also decided that the immigration enforcement people should have the power to decide trafficking claims. So certain categories of people, chiefly those with criminal convictions, if they report being trafficked, their case will be handled by immigration enforcement and not the single competent authority. And it seems to me, perhaps I am overly cynical about these things, but there's no obvious reason to do this unless you want to reject a whole bunch of trafficking claims. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's not a good change. And it's always struck me as odd that the single competent authority is even part of the Home Office. The fact that the body tasked with deciding whether you're a victim of trafficking is the same body that's responsible for removing you. However, at least within the Home Office, there were different departments that dealt with different aspects of it. So there's the single competent authority, the asylum casework who decided asylum claims and whether you got to stay or not, and then immigration enforcement who dealt with removal. Um, it's even more problematic that trafficking claims are now going to be dealt with the department within the Home Office that are responsible for removal, never mind just the same umbrella organisation. Yeah, because normally they would only come in like once the decision-making process has run its course and the decision-making people would sort of hand your file over to the enforcement people to remove you from the country, as you say. Whereas now the removal people yeah, have, have your file from the outset and like just culturally, institutionally, their mindset would run, run to removal. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. On the plus side, there is a high court case on human trafficking that makes some helpful points on credibility. Maybe limited form of value as precedent in what a deputy high court judge says, but potentially useful, or at very least heartening to see. The judge is David Locke QC. He happens to follow me on Twitter, no big deal. Uh, but he was sitting in the high court uh, as a deputy judge, and he just points out that if you've been trafficked, you've probably experienced all sorts of trauma, like almost definitionally, that may well mean that you lie to the authorities for irrational reasons arising from that trauma. And that doesn't mean you haven't been trafficked, right? Lying is consistent with being trafficked. And he quotes an expert witness who says he's never known a trafficking case where the victim didn't have at least inconsistencies in their account. So like, if you're a Home Office official, maybe in the newly created immigration enforcement trafficking team, and you think your job is to catch people out, that like you'll always be able to, probably, because of the nature of the experience of being trafficked. But the point is, like maybe your job is or should be primarily about helping people and only secondarily about being on 
constant watch for people scamming the system. The case, if interested in taking a look at those comments, is our TVN and Secretary of State 2021-EWHC-3019 admin. Yeah, it looks like a, an interesting case. Um, it reminds me of a Supreme Court case um, back in 2010. It's MA Somalia, and the citation for anyone that wants to go and look that up is 2010 UK Supreme Court 49. In that case, the Justice of the Supreme Court said that it's not surprising that asylum seekers frequently lie to bolster their claims. Just because they've lied about something doesn't mean that the claim must fail. Depends on the bearing the lie has on the case and the other evidence that's available. They note that the tribunal needs to be alive to the danger of falling into the trap of dismissing an appeal merely because the appellant has told lies. So they're all very helpful observations, similar to the observations in this case, um, and apply to both asylum and trafficking claims. Just because a person's lied doesn't mean they're lying about everything and their claim must fail. You need to look at it in more detail. And, well, why are they lying? Are they just embellishing it? Is there a kernel of truth in there? And and really give the case a, a proper investigation rather than just dismissing it because the person's told some lies. Finally, coming to the end of the podcast, but there's a deportation case which was pretty interesting on its facts and also reported for legal reasons by the Upper Tribunal. On the facts, the person being lined up for deportation here was a 75-year-old American lady named Polly Gordon who'd been living in the UK for most of her long life. She moved here in 1968. And like for context, that was the year of Elvis Presley's comeback tour. It like it was an extraordinarily long time ago. And she's now pretty infirm. She walks with a Zimmer frame, all sorts of health problems. She received a 12-month prison sentence for selling drugs. And it wasn't her first rodeo, unfortunately. Um, and the Home Office sought to deport her to the United States. And they nearly succeeded. The first tier tribunal said, yeah, you've got to go. But the upper tribunal uh, did decide in Miss Gordon's favour, basically because she pleaded guilty early on in the criminal proceedings. And if she she got the 12-month sentence, if she'd stuck it out, she would have got 18 months. And so the tribunal said, well, you know, what we're looking at here is a 12-month, not an 18-month uh, sentence. You judge the seriousness by the sentence actually handed down not the sentence that might have been handed down the potential 18 months that at least is my perhaps superficial understanding of the case ian you wrote up so you might give us the more considered analysis the citation gordon deportation sentencing discounts 2021 ukut 287 iac my write-up really focused on the the legal dispute and really laboured maybe too much the differences between Scottish and English criminal law. Um, but the reason for that was that the, the first year tribunal judge decided not to follow the Court of Appeal Authority of H.A. Iraq. And that case is on whether it's the actual sentence or the pre-discount sentence, which is relevant in deportation cases. So the pre-discount sentence would be the sentence before the deduction for an early guilty plea. And that may seem odd to many listeners that a first-year tribunal judge didn't follow a court of appeal case. Many would think that's quite an obvious error of law. But the first-year tribunal judge actually issued quite a careful and nuanced decision based on Scotland's completely different criminal justice system. And he had quite good reasons for not applying H.E. Iraq to Scottish cases. That didn't stop the upper tribunal 
overruling the judge below and following HE Iraq. Um, although I do think that's probably the right decision because they based that on interpretation of Part 5A of the Nationality, Immigration and Asylum Act 2002, which is the same throughout the UK. So it seems that they've come to the, the right decision ultimately, but it's definitely not as clear cut as it might first seem because there are differences between Scottish and English criminal law. I also saw your recent post, CJ, that HE Iraq is uh, going to be going to the Supreme Court. So um, this perhaps isn't the, the last word on the matter. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to save that uh, exciting information for our next episode. But that very important deportation ruling from the Court of Appeal is going to the Supreme Court next year. Will they reopen the whole can of worms that we thought was settled by that sensible-seeming ruling from the Court of Appeal? Perhaps. But we will have much more to say about that, no doubt, uh, in 2022. And that's about it for this episode. Just before we sign off, a quick parish notice on the Free Movement podcast in general. Regular listeners will know that we normally release an episode every couple of weeks. The formal timetable is the second and fourth Friday of every calendar month. And this schedule was something we committed to in response to feedback in our last audience survey. People told us they'd like the podcast to be more regular, which was sensible and we agreed with. I would just like to acknowledge that we have fallen off the wagon a bit recently. We did stick to our schedule all through 2021 up to October, but we did miss an episode last month. This episode is delayed uh, and there will not be a second episode in December. We do intend to get back on track in January. We'll do our two episodes a month on Fridays as before, so please forgive the recent lapse in regularity. So, big thanks to Ian for coming on this week. Thanks to all our other guests on the podcast this year. I've learned a lot from them, and I hope you did as well. All that remains is to wish you a happy Christmas and a happy new year. We'll be back in 2022. Until then, thanks for listening.